Well, good to see you again, uh, Jason. So, goal today, as we uh, mentioned previously, was uh, take this awesome framework that you invented, that we've been working with for a while, the design company, and you know, just look in a pragmatic sense how that can apply to a specific company, see what insights we might have, and then see how that might be transferable uh, to other industries, businesses, etc. Um, I'm sure you also have some ideas of what can emerge organically from today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's always good to have a framework to start off with, especially uh -huh. one that, that works and that's based on reality. And then actually constantly put that framework through a test and mm -hmm. see how we can leverage that framework with real world examples. As Einstein said, uh, you can only teach through an example. Uh, so let's put this framework through different examples and see how it would uh, inform us towards what we would do better or where this company in each example that we'll do in each episode may benefit from this framework or how we can assess it better for, let's say, investors, employees, um, customers, and so on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, so I mean, I'll let you choose the what the one or multiple companies you'd like us to look at today. But one thing I think that's really interesting about this kind of series that we're looking at is that if you look at work now in 2020 as opposed to 20, 30, 40 years ago, there's been a huge change, which is that before you went into a company and you pretty much had a job for life. And I'm talking about a very micro level, you know, so you come in as an accountant, then you'd be a senior accountant, then you'd be a financial controller non-expert in the area, but you know, basically that like gradation and very siloed organizations with clear division of roles and responsibilities. And so that's why I find design company really interesting is actually because now if you look at the way the world is working, it's not so much about the label of your job, it's just more seeing a company as a you know, holistic set of processes, workflows, people working on different things in a cross-departmental fashion. Um, and so I think that's just really important for whichever companies we're looking at to say, okay, well, whatever your job is, there is a purpose to this organization and then everything else emanates organically from that. So, you know, just breaking down this whole departmental functional view and just really saying, you know, what's our mission? How are we going to deliver on that? How are we going to leverage the skills and capabilities we have? I think that's the modern challenge of any workplace now. And that's something that design company answers very well. Yeah. And so it's also interesting to, to note that on some level, there is value in drawing distinctions, but then really ultimately it's about holism and mm -hmm. holistic thinking. And so in some sense, there is unification and integration to be created between holistic view, or perhaps it can be talked about in management as strategic view, mm -hmm. as well as compartmentalized or departmentalized view mm -hmm. that has to work towards serving the whole and not just whole of the company, but the whole of humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in some sense, there is freedom in wholeness and freedom in uh, sectionality. Uh, and, and then there's also the freedom in the intersectionality. But one, one of the things I don't like in America, they use the word division. So we mm -hmm. have a, a company and it, it, here is our product division or product uh, or marketing division. Immediately you're getting in this divisive tone, even from the wording, mm -hmm. it's divisive. 
So there is a value in distinctions to be made that something is a purpose thing or a money thing or a product thing. But then really absolutely the big value is in combining those things together in the right way. So I agree with you. In essence, what you're saying is, um, and this is kind of a larger thing that we find in society as well, we're mm-hmm. kind of throwing everything into question. You know, we, you know, I mean, this, I would say, societal discourse, not necessarily in my own view, but kind of it's this postmodernist view that we need to challenge everything, throw everything up, you know. And so in that sense, that can get quite messy. And as you said, it actually becomes a lack of freedom because you don't know where to go anymore. Um, so in that sense, I would say it is about, you know, going from first principles, really saying, what does each thing or item or group of people serve? What purpose is there? Um, and then combining back, that back together, giving it structure. Um, so I mean, if we look at, it, for example, you know, some of the things that we've identified in the uh, individual space, you know, people talk about habits, rituals, all of that. I mean, even if you're not, you know, one of those really hardcore people that wakes up at 5.30 in the morning, does five minutes of meditation, has a lemon juice, goes for a 5.5 kilometer run on Strava, and then does one hour of prayer, followed by journaling. Okay, I mean, that's a bit of an extreme, but you know what well, I have- You've got to use a hand-squeezed lemon juice. Yes, hand-squeezed, <laughs> yes, my bad. Um, you know, what you find actually is, you, you don't need to go to that extreme, but definitely actually having a system, a repeatable way of doing things and iterating something on that, that is a real driver of value, you know? And I think, you know, this particular, the systems part of design company, What's interesting is that nowadays, a lot of people, you know, their jobs are basically venerating a system. So especially look at management consulting, all of this, we're just kind of t- going inside the box, twiddling around, but we're not questioning why the box exists in the first place. Um, and the other extreme is, hey, you know, systems are horrible, we're all creatives, you know, that's, you know, that sucks. So I think it's also about, as you said, you know, um, being able to split things up to the individual atoms, combining them together but then also have this ongoing foundation that we can build on top of instead of re-questioning something every time. Yeah, and so this is, this is very, very important to ground the concepts and the architecture of what we do in things that are well understood and well defined. And this works perfectly well for software and we're mm-hmm. moving towards an era where companies are turning into just one giant piece of software. (laughs) (laughs) And so so that that software architecture approach is actually also company architecture. Mm -hmm. And 20 years ago, let's say, we've been able to talk about this as a conceptual, theoretical kind of nice idea. Nowadays, we are doing that practically. Mm. as a real thing and so then the question is what do you ground your company in and you ground it in well-defined concepts that are as simple as possible for an intern let's say to comprehend and that can be combined upwards into as complex organisms as you want without necessarily increasing complications you increase Hmm. complexity but you don't make it more complicated yeah okay i mean so would you maybe share an example of kind of this atomic approach that an intern can understand and that Mm -hmm. you know builds up into larger organisms so uh, the atomic approach is 
for example, in, in psychology, there is the, it, even that is an anti-pattern of magical number seven plus minus two. It's what was known as Muller rule, the idea that uh, people can only remember seven plus minus two things, so five to nine things, okay? Mm -hmm. But actually, even that has been debunked to the point that actually in the frontal memory, people can only remember four things. Okay. So we're only as smart as remembering four things. And this is why credit card numbers that are 16, they're split into four sets of four. Um, this is why, for example, if you are activating an account, they might send you a, like a pin number and then you read that on an email. If you read four numbers, you remember if that pin number is six numbers, immediately your, your brain is overloaded. You can't remember. You have to go back twice to the email. You might see a, a, um, a drop off in signups for a company because the pin number for validation is longer than four, four, let, four numbers long. So in, in design company, the model is seven because let's say we're dealing with people that are just slightly smarter than four, okay? Then that's why the purpose, people, systems, innovation, products, money, and growth, though that those seven layers exist there and they're simple words like that. They're not words like operations, finances, uh, marketing, uh, and so on. Uh, and so, and those, those words are quite well understood across different levels of maturity of people. And it works because my 12 year old son can comprehend it really quickly. Mm -hmm. And he can really get bought into that because he understands it. And meanwhile, majority of the management literature, if you want to even understand what the book is talking about, you require six months of ponderous kind mm -hmm. of contemplative, meditative thinking and reading and study to even understand what the author is talking about. This is why when I was studying management, I actually started practicing management when I stopped reading the books. <laughs> I mean, that's a really good point. You just raised both of those points, actually. Uh, so the one about memory and the one about this culture of managerial words that aren't necessarily tied to impact. I think that's a huge issue to resolve today from a cultural perspective, because if you look at organizations, managers, you know, people with MBAs, you know, these kind of highly professional types, quote unquote, um, what you see is almost a sense of professional pride about knowing all this lingo, you know, or if you're in a company, knowing all the ins and outs, the details of the company and retaining the information so that a new arrival can't really assimilate. Um, and I think that's a big issue because, again, we started venerating the, the, the wrong things, you know. So it's mm -hmm. all about knowledge, but not asking whether that knowledge is useful. It's all about information as a sense of retaining your power in the organization. And, you know, it just creates a very difficult place for new blood to come in. So I remember, you know, I mean, as you know, I'm an entrepreneur, but I had one or two real jobs in my life. And I remember one, um, I, I came in uh, to run an accelerator program. And basically, I had no fucking idea what was happening inside the company. Like, you know, the, the directors didn't tell me uh, the details of strategic initiatives. I didn't understand the culture around collaboration. Um, so, I mean, for example, one story, you know, one funny story, like me personally, I don't care, you know, what, where a feedback comes from. If the idea makes sense, I'll take it on board. And so there the culture was different, but I was not made aware of that prior, which was I came on, we had a meeting, I suggested some ideas. And one of the girls after the meeting told me, hey, 
you know, you stop telling us how to do our jobs. Um, so I think in that sense, just this capability to really focus on really important knowledge and then also be open to people putting that knowledge into question and building upon it is the key. And I mean, if we look at what building a company is, there's a lot of things. But if you think about a company in its most abstract sense, and this is one, you might disagree, but this is one of, one of the themes of design company, it's a set of systems. It's a system mm -hmm. of how do I deliver customer support? How do I build my product? How do I do my accounting, you know? And then all the other stuff, the purpose, the people, the innovation, the products, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's stuff that you add on that kind of gives the company life. But if you look at the company as kind of a skeletal thing on paper, it's those systems. And so when we venerate those systems as gods, instead of just seeing them as the current highest level of knowledge of the company that should be shared with everybody and improved upon, that's where we get all the one million pound consultants that just give you PowerPoints, but not much impact. Exactly. And so what they, what they do is they, they skip the purpose and people and they go straight into systems as those mm -hmm. systems are literally the govern, like not, not so much the gut, like there's this thing here even about governance because governance ought to be like a regulatory system, mm -hmm. but actually uh, even in sort of Cockney language, it's like they would say, you know, the gangster would say, he's the governor. Right, meaning mm. he rules. He's actually mm. telling us what to do. So, so what they would do is they would enshrine a system that is governing in that kind of way that is like telling people what to do, as mm -hmm. opposed to governing and creating a best practice, almost like um, ground upon which innovation can happen. Mm -hmm. So this is this is why this is why there is so much of this. Um, uh, to toxic patriarchy complaining going on because the systems are actually have been designed to govern in that kind of gangster way as opposed to provide a fertile ground of which uh, innovation can thrive and that's why you see so many corporations actually not really innovating and that's why innovation happens in startups because Usually there isn't governance at all, and mm -hmm. people are free, free more or less free to, to, to come up with new ideas. And yeah. then they start realizing that a lot of those new ideas make total sense. Uh, and, 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 then, and then corporates start scratching their heads going, what, how, how did we not come up with that? And the answer is because they're having the system that's dictating to them what is and isn't allowed. And the startups don't have that. The startups are starting from purpose and then letting the people become the enshriners of those guiding principles that enable thriving of innovation, creation of amazing products, and that eventually results in money and growth, usually in exponential ways. So I think that's really interesting what you said. Um, I would also add something, you know, I think even if the startup had the idea, the thing is, so a few people in the corporate probably also had that idea, but it never came to fruition because it's, you know, it's not a fit. Yes. You have to go through seven levels of committees. Yeah. Um, and so I think one of the powerful things, whatever kind of business you're in, is reducing the distance between idea and execution. Um, and so, you know, as you said, you have these top-down systems in a very large corporation where, you know, to execute something means dedicating resources, means having seven levels of sign-off. Whereas, you know, in a startup, um, you know, providing you either can make that decision or can make the case that it fits the purpose of the startup, you're good to go. 
Um, and so I think that's one really important thing as well is that often we think, uh, you know, the higher you rise in the hierarchy, the higher your capability is. But actually, you know, let's just look at like a big company like Google. You know, there are the management parts, but there are also the individual contributor technical parts where people are still coding 20 years afterwards, making one, two, five million dollars a year, and they're doing stuff. So I think also it's all about getting out of this mindset that being a manager or a boss is the best thing and recognizing that everybody actually has a role to play and that some people actually don't want to deal with people. They just want to have great infrastructure to do their best work. Uh, I mean, that's one thing, for example, people keep telling software engineers, hey, man, you should build your startup, la, la, la. But it's not true because building software is one thing, but then having a market problem, distributing that software, selling it, dealing with the company, like some people don't want to do that kind of stuff and that's fine. So I think whatever kind of company you're in, um, I think we need to go beyond the word startup mindset and just, you know, be, I guess, more intellectually honest, you know, say, does this make sense for the organization? Cool. What's the best way to get this launched? And certainly when you're publicly traded, you have more regulatory, you know, obligations, but there's still no reason that any company should not be able to, as you said, have a fertile ground to actually have stuff rise from its employees. Because by the way, when you hire people, they do stuff full time that you're not doing anymore. So generally they are a bit smarter, more capable and more observant opportunities than you are as a leader who's busy with other stuff. Yeah. And so it's in, in management science and management practices, you usually see managers actually playing to the system and really taking care of the processes and things like that, as opposed to actually really being able or even willing to listen to people, because that seems to be like the hard thing to do. And that's why what we're doing with Design Company, um, actually, it blends the best of both worlds, which is that you can listen to the people Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't require you to be having those heavy duty conversations all the time. In fact, the whole thing is atomized into uh, daily routines that even an intern can follow and, um, and that th- th- can then be used by entire company all the time. And so that someone like, I often think about someone like Bill Gates, for example, that's actually running pretty much like an empire. Um, he is completely data kind of guy, but he originally had a problem uh, this was kind of famous case study when Microsoft went public, Bill Gates became the richest man in the world. And suddenly the water cooler moments that he was able to have with other people in the Microsoft became moments where other employees in the Microsoft would be kind of starstruck by Bill Gates. And they would literally just look up to him as like, oh my God, this guy is literally God. And yeah. Uh, and they would then be buying his books and asking him at the water cooler, could you please sign my book? And so he was never really able to anymore get real feedback from his employees who would tell him, hey, Bill, you know, this thing is rubbish. Let's, let's just fix it. And we'd say, sure, how much, what do you need? Let me empower that. No longer could he have that truthful insight. And that's actually one of the reasons why Microsoft started going down as a company after the IPO. And they somehow started getting back into that sort of customer centricity, but it's been like 20 year ordeal. 
And what they're now doing is they're embracing design a lot more, which is actually creating Microsoft to, to be relevant still and, and stay relevant. But they're doing that through lots of acquisitions and actually they're sort of proxying that customer centricity through acquiring various startups that have this direct to people approach. And what we're doing with design company software is bringing that direct to people uh, interface in a way that is like a daily micro uh, water cooler conversation, bringing it directly back up to whoever cares to see the data in real time and to give them power to backwards empower those employees, whether they're interns, management, whatever level. And so what that would then mean, for example, right now I'm reading news, for example, there's posted news, Canary Wharf in London, there's been a case of coronavirus happening uh, in one of the offices. Now imagine if all those companies were able or were willing and equipped with design company software, they could literally run an immediate questionnaire uh, around who is experiencing coronavirus-like symptoms, Mm -hmm. people-wise. And they will be able to immediately know the percentage of people who are experiencing that and what the threat level, what the downwards risk from people down through the systems, innovation, products, money, and growth is and how they could really uh, remedy that and protect it, prevent it, et cetera, and maintain the company. I think that's really interesting what you said about the management side of things. Uh, you know, one thing I've seen actually during a pilot project of the design company software was, you know, this. So I tried this out in an operational uh, team of employees, and there was a branch manager who I presented the results to. And so the funny thing was, we actually had like, so, so what was really good was we had very extreme results. So we had like 10 out of 10 purpose, you know, eight out of nine, you know, team cohesion and you know, ambiance and people getting on with each other. And then we had very terrible grades in terms of uh, confidence in management, two and a half, uh, you know, satisfaction with pay to, between two and three. And so the really funny thing that I found was that this manager, instead of like proactively trying to work with me to, you know, look at these issues together, say, what can we solve locally? What can we, you know, send up to the hierarchy? Tried to, you know, kill off the project, basically. Uh, so obviously I dealt with that. But the funny thing was that this is a pattern that's repeated throughout management everywhere and why I chose never to have a real job in that sense. I mean, I do have a real one, but people protecting themselves instead of taking themselves out and just looking at the greater purpose of how do we solve problems and solutions without this becoming a personal issue. Exactly. And this is actually uh, when you listen to presentations from uh, gurus on design thinking from Stanford and so on, they'd, they'd actually talk about this middle management layer as the kill zone, which is the people that whenever you present beautiful ideas to, they just tend to kill it because they want to maintain status quo for most part, as opposed to actually continuously change and iterate on the system and kaizen that uh, throughout. So um, the, the companies of the future, even today, companies cannot afford to do that anymore. They cannot afford to try and maintain the status quo 
uh, even it doesn't even work as a name of a rock band, let alone anything else. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you. It is. I mean, I think it is about. And I understand we are coming towards the end of our time. We both mm -hmm. have to jet off. But I think you know one of the key things out of today, the messages, is all about just confronting the truth. You know, we're in a world now that's data driven, where people have this rising culture where they're not going to accept to just walk around putting a smile, pretending everything is okay. Mm. I think that's very healthy. So I think, you know, it's our role to be that catalyst and help these people that want this truth with capital T to see that truth and then figure out, okay, what are we going to do with it? Correct. Truth hurts, but it shall set you free. That's exactly. it. Thanks well, so much. On that <laughs> note, see you on the next time. You too. Cheers, Take care. Bye.